Magic is often a force of primal power, capable of vast destruction and inherently unknowable. But seen in the right light, it can also be a truly wonderful, marvelous thing. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Freya Moss. Her debut novel, A Marvelous Light, is a steamy historical fantasy out now from Tor.com. Freya and I discuss the best gens, building books around an emotional spine, and the highlights of her unofficial smut writing course. Freya and I had a delightful conversation. So on that note, let's jump right in. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Freya. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, and given that this is a fantasy podcast and you're a fantasy writer, I feel like the only natural place to start is asking you about your quest to try all the gin in the world. Uh, So how is that going? (laughs) Well, very well, thank you. I think as quests go, it's one of those good ones that's both, it sounds like it's something that you could achieve, but it's also completely unachievable, which I think is what a fantasy quest should be. Do you have any recommendations for me? Do you want any recommendations? Uh, so I know almost nothing about gin. So if you have recommendations for me, that would be great. Well, a lot of my favorite gins are Australian because I like to support local distilleries and Australia has really okay. exploded as a producer of local gins in the last decade or so. My favorite Australian gin producer is called Four Pillars and they make a really good range. But in terms of ones that are available overseas, I really like Roku, the Japanese gin, and The Botanist, okay. which is a Scottish gin from Isla. So those would be my my two recs for you. <laughs> okay, and another newbie question. Is that something that you just sip on straight, or is that something that you mix into your favorite cocktail? Some people do gin straight. I, I don't, honestly. I can, I can do a martini, which is about as strong as gin goes in terms of cocktails. I'm an English purist. I like a gin and tonic. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I I do, uh, for better or for worse, have a liquor store within walking distance of my home. So I might go over there and try to find some of the ones you've mentioned. Excellent. Well, tell me, tell me if you like them. Okay. <laughs> and so since we're not quite on topic yet, your bio also mentions that you're a figure skater, though I do really like how you put it on Twitter as dancing on knife shoes. So how did you get into dancing on knife shoes? Well, there are two answers to that because I got into it twice. So I first started skating when I was four because I had cousins who did it. So it's not really a very common sport in Australia. It's not what you think of when you think Australia. Oh, yes, winter sports indoors. But I didn't really like ball sports and team sports and I liked performing. So it was a perfect sport for me. And then I stopped at the end, end of primary school at 12. And then I started again at age 30. And that time it was because of the anime Yuri on Ice, which had made me remember how much I loved ice skating (laughs) as a sport. And I really do like it even more as an adult than I did as a kid because you have this joy of small improvements. You know, even if you're not competing, it's all about watching yourself slowly, slowly get better, master a skill that you couldn't do a month ago. And obviously it's also an activity that has a lot of concentration that has nothing to do with my work, nothing to do with writing. It takes all of my body and all of my brain. So it's a good escape during the week. Yeah, no, it it sounds awesome. Uh, it's something that I've mostly been too scared to try because uh, I can get the going up to speed pretty well, but it's the turns <laughs> it's the and stopping. the stopping and any other thing that I'm yeah. not really good at. Well, so. <laughs> I think the advantage of having started it twice is as an adult, you're not 
as scared of the ice because when you start skating as a mm. kid, the ice isn't very far away. You know, you fall down, you get back up. It's fine. But if you go back to it as an adult, you're very used to falling and you know it doesn't usually hurt too much. And so you're a bit more fearless when it comes to trying new things. Adult beginners, there's a lot of them at our rink and it takes a lot of guts to get onto something where the ice is very far away and very hard and everything's quite slippery and you have to learn to fall as part of the, of the process of getting better at skating. And so when you do add up all the points of your bio together, it does really sound like you use your figure skating skills maybe to escape the scary Australian wildlife and then maybe the gin to forget all the close calls. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a perfect mixture. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, okay, getting more into interview proper then, uh, can you remember what first made you fall in love with fantasy? I think I've always read it. So for when I was a young kid choosing books for myself from the library from the age of five or so, as far as I was concerned, books came in two forms. There was performing arts books and then there was magic books. And that covered almost everything that I was interested in picking up. So I remember probably the first book I distinctly remember reading for myself was Matilda by Roald Dahl. And so I read my way through Roald Dahl. Uh, I had a lot of Enid Blyton books, Narnia, uh, The Little White Horse by Elizabeth Googe is another English. So I read a lot of English, what would I suppose now be considered middle grade level kids books that were all very fantasy based. Uh, Joan Aiken, who wrote alternative history with fantastical elements. And I remember my mum read us The Hobbit. She read us Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when I was probably a little young to get half the jokes, but the other half that were very language-based <laughs> and just about silly things happening, I thought was hysterical as a small child. And I just never really moved away. I started reading more in other genres as I got older, but I never moved from science fiction and fantasy. It was still what I considered to be the right sort of book. Yeah, that, that kind of tracks not necessarily specific authors or books or anything, but that tracks with my experience where I feel like most people kind of start out being introduced to stories through the fantastical. Like a lot of bedtime stories or children's books are definitely speculative fiction in nature mm. uh, if we want to try to be like artistic about it. But yeah, I guess it's whether you uh, stay interested in the genre or not is the big thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I I was lucky enough to have a lot of books in the house, a lot of books in the library and books in the school library. And there was no incentive to move away from fantasy. And the, the more fantasy I read, the more there was. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There is always enough books to find something to read. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm also curious, when and how did you decide you wanted to become a writer? So like ice skating, this one is a decision that I made multiple times. <laughs> I was first... Okay paid for writing when I was five. So our local newspaper wow. had this section where kids could send in very short stories or jokes or poems, and you would get a $5 book voucher in payment. And I remember I wrote a poem at age five and got it published in the newspaper and I got a book voucher and clearly something inside me clicked and went, well, this is good. I produce words. I get paid in the ability to buy more words. Perfect situation. And honestly, I think if my publishers now still paid me in bookshop credit, that would probably be okay. That would still seem <laughs> to me like a perfect arrangement. Um, I think I always liked the idea of writing something that was going to be published. I started a lot of books throughout high school and didn't finish any of them. But I never really thought of writer with a capital W as a career. I think there were too many other things that I was also interested in and wanted to do. And even then probably had some sense of how difficult it is for writing to be your sole career and how few people can actually make that work financially. 
so I put original fiction on the back burner all through university and then medical school and then medical specialty training and just wrote fanfic basically for 15 years. And then once I had no more exams to do, <laughs> I picked up original fiction again and thought, okay, let's see if I can make this work. And I've had a really great time since then. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I mean, 15 years of fanfic experience is a lot of building up those writing chops and like training yourself for, I, well, not that uh, traditional publishing is like a step up from fanfic, but it is definitely training you as a writer. I've talked to quite a few people who have gotten their start in fanfiction. Mm, I think it, you're absolutely right in that it's a wonderful art form in itself and there's absolutely nothing to say that it has to be a training ground for original fiction. There are people who write only fanfic and have no interest in original fic. There are lots of people who continue writing both. Uh, and I think, you know, its value in itself is for telling those untold stories. It's always traditionally been a female space, now very queer space, you know, having justice for underappreciated characters, putting those queer love stories in the text where they were only subtext in the canon. But I do think that if someone is learning to write, working in somebody else's world is the equivalent of using training wheels in some sense, because you've got all that freedom to develop a prose style, to develop your own voice, to develop pacing, then how do you use tropes? You're given half the ingredients already, so you can really work on the other half. And I think most importantly, the number one thing that writing fanfic for so many years taught me is that you can't get the reward of having written a thing unless you finish the thing. <laughs> so after having lots and lots <laughs> of unfinished books, this taught me that you, you, know, you can start with a 3,000 word short fic, post it, it's done, it's off your plate, you get some nice comments. And I worked my way up from there to writing a 60,000 word political intrigue fanfic, mostly peopled by original characters. And then I was ready to take the training wheels off. Yeah, I mean, uh, a 60,000 or 60,000 word mostly original characters sounds like uh, some hell of impressive training wheels. Because I mean, that's what a lot of novels, well, not maybe fantasy novels, but that's what a lot of novels are, 60,000 words. Yeah, well, that particular one was a very deliberate project. So I could sort of feel in myself that I was branching out more and more into original characters, original world building. And I thought, okay, I think I'm ready to go back to writing and see if I can produce a novel of my own now. And that was a way of saying, can I do this? Yes or no. If I can finish this, I can then move on to writing books, which is what I did. I finished that. I went, yep, good. I feel like I am confident now. And now I've written, I think, six novels since then. Yeah, that's, that's definitely impressive. So as a genre fiction fan, for me, maybe this is a strange opinion to have, but in relation to fanfic, I feel like the most difficult part of writing is not creating something new or like building a new world or coming up with a new character. It's everything you do from there. But it's also, I feel like one of the biggest stumbling blocks when you're starting is how do I do this thing that's never been done before or create something from nothing? So I feel like fanfic maybe gets that out of the way and lets you focus on honing the dialogue, the characterization, uh, plot, you know, all the important writing things. Yeah, exactly. It really builds your toolkit. Though I will say, going from fanfic to original fiction, I think the biggest thing that is left over that you still have to teach yourself is how do you get emotional buy-in for the readers? How do you get your reader to connect to a character and care about what happens? Because the biggest thing about fanfic is you have that emotional buy-in already. Most of the time, someone who is opening a fanfic cares about the characters. They want to see them fall in love or they want to see their further adventures. They have that in, and so they will read because they want to see those characters. If you're writing something original, 
you have to learn to make people care about characters quickly so that they will then keep reading without that pre-existing knowledge that they're bringing to the table already. So for me, that was the biggest thing I had to learn to do moving from fanfic to original fiction. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how do you do that? You know, easy <laughs> question. How do you get readers to buy into that emotionally? Uh, it's a mystery. Uh, I think you can use tropes again. Like there are certain shorthands for types of characters that people appreciate. Like my book that is coming out is a jock nerd romance. And so I knew when I was designing the characters that those were like the, it's obviously an oversimplification of who they are, but they are a recognizable type of person without being a stereotype. And so once you can give somebody something that's a little bit familiar, that creates a little bit of a hook in their mind. And then you show them more of the character through what does this person care about? What's their narration focusing on? And I think if you talk to 10 different authors, you'll get 10 different answers as to how you create emotional buy-in with narration. For me, I think I like characters who are who have an interest, who have something that they care about deeply. And if it's a, a hobby or something that they that's just a priority for them, and you can put that into narration, especially if you're doing first person or very close third narration, very quickly. You can make it obvious to a reader, what does this person care about? What motivates them? What gives them joy in their life? Because even if you don't like a character a lot or find them particularly relatable, they have to seem human. And people care about little things. And so that's, that's I suppose, my primary method when I'm creating a character and introducing them to readers. I think, what is a little thing about them that I can make obvious very quickly? And uh, so building on the jock nerd romance uh, <laughs> archetypes that you were mentioning, I think my advanced copy that I got uh, was just titled punchy boyfriend, library boyfriend. So definitely I feel like fits that to a T. I guess, yeah. So that's my internal labels for what they were. And that was the <laughs> dynamic that I was going for is that there's the library boyfriend. And then there's the boyfriend who wants to solve all of his problems by hitting them in the face. And what happens when he is faced with some problems where that is not the correct approach or even a possible approach? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, hypothetically speaking, if someone were to, say, have literally zero experience with fan fiction themselves, <laughs> where would you recommend they start? I think this is where I say asking for a friend, but the friend is me. <laughs> well, I would say to you, I would ask for Rex from a trusted friend who knows what you like. So okay. you know, what kind of fix that? There's so much variety out there. If somebody knows what sort of stories you like, you know, do you like very internal, slow, emotion-driven stories? Do you like adventure stories? Do you like stories with a heist or a mystery? Um, then you want to find somebody who can recommend things that are similar to that. But it depends also what you're looking for out of it. If you're looking for more out of a universe or a character you like, then you want to focus in on that fandom. Or if you're just looking for more of a trope that you really like, you know, Archive of Our Own, the main fanfic site, is so well tagged that it's very easy to go to arranged marriage tag and just click and start scrolling through and looking for a pairing or a fandom you like, or just clicking on one that's totally unfamiliar and treating it like original fiction, which is how some people approach fanfic as well. But I'd say it's a big crowded world out there get a friend to take you in by the hand when you when you go in first. Get them to show you where the stuff is that you like. 
Yeah, no, that's that's a good idea. That's how I approach all of my book recommendations in general. So uh, <laughs> that seems like the logical place to start. Yep, same rules apply. Um, uh, so I also love how prominently fanfic features and your podcast that you're a part of, Be the Serpent, which mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the more unique angles that originally drew me to the show. That and, of course, the extremely deep literary merit uh, that we lack here at the <laughs> Fantasy Inn. I mean, you have to say the words with a certain amount of imbued irony. You have to be quite mm. self-aware when you're <laughs> about literary merit as a concept when you're saying it. But yes, fanfic's a big part of it. So I'm curious, just how did you get started with that podcast and what's your favorite part about it? We got started. So the short answer there is Robot Sex and Ursula Le Guin. Okay. I'm going to have to ask you to elaborate on that. <laughs> All right. So um, so I was already friends online with uh, Jennifer Mace, one of my co-hosts, and she read my first book that I ever read because we were sort of in a exchange where we were giving each other feedback on short stories. And I said, do you want to read my book? And because there's some elements about the wool industry in that book, the, the fantasy wool industry, uh, Macy said, oh, I have a friend who'd really like this. They're into fiber arts. And so she introduced me to Alex Rowland. And the three of us just really clicked. We enjoyed talking about the same things. And then one day we were talking about a Transformers fanfic and the ways in which that fanfic was in conversation with the short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And Alex suggested that we record ourselves having the discussion and use it to start a podcast. Actually, it turns out Alex had been wanting to start a podcast for a long time and they just laid in wait and sprung the suggestion on Macy and I like a cunning trap. But look, it's been four years, three Hugo nominations later. I can't say I regret it. It's been really fun. Yeah, that is a very successful cunning trap indeed. Uh, And I actually saw right before we jumped on recording this uh, that that's Coming to a close, uh, maybe not forever, but at least for now, uh, I guess, so we're recording this in advance, fairly soon, in the next month or so, there's maybe a couple episodes left of the podcast. Yeah, so we announced that with our episode 90, that we are going up to episode 100 uh, as our final episode for now. And yeah, I think it's the right time. 100 is a very nice round number. It'll mean that we've been going for basically four years, almost bang on. Uh, which is longer than I think any of us ever expected to go with the podcast. So it already feels like an achievement that we've made it to 100. Uh, We've covered a lot of really good ground. We're really excited about the rest of the episodes that we have planned. And it's a good feeling to think, okay, we're all going out on a high while we still really enjoy the podcast, while we're still really proud of what we're producing. Uh, But we've decided it's time for all of us to move on to some other projects. Yeah. And I know as writers, there is never a shortage of projects. Oh, no. (laughs) There's always more to do (laughs) and more to read. I think one of the big things for the podcast has been doing the podcast homework because we always have three things for each episode that we have to read or watch, you know, take notes on and then discuss in conversation with each other. So it will free up a little bit more space for my ever-growing TBR. Yes, absolutely. Um, Well, Okay, so we've been talking for a while and you are here to discuss uh, your book, A Marvelous Light. So do you have a pitch for us? I do. So the A Marvelous Light is a queer historical fantasy of very bad manners about magicians, murder, and manor house parties in Edwardian England. The original tweet with that pitch also included an eggplant emoji and the word redacted in brackets, but that is the pitch as it stands currently. <laughs> um, yes, there is a no, slightly, that, is, that is great. <laughs> there is a slightly longer 
version of the pitch, which is uh, it's set in 1908 and it's about a young civil servant who finds he's been accidentally named as the liaison to the magical bureaucracy of Britain and that his predecessor has disappeared in mysterious circumstances. So he has to work with his prickly magical counterpart to uncover a conspiracy and remove a curse and probably fall in love. Probably. <laughs> probably. You know, it's a book by me. There's probably going to be falling in love. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, so I guess this is kind of a recurring theme for me is I tend to pick up books having a good idea of whether I like them or not, but having zero idea of what the book is about because mm -hmm. friends are talking about it and they say, hey, we think you'd like this. And they're usually right. So yeah, I, I had no idea that any of that was going to be in the book. So it was all a lovely surprise. Oh, good. Okay. I did know there would be falling in love. I did have uh, a good <laughs> idea that that might be included. I feel like if Sarah pitched it to you, it probably was a good bet that there was going to be falling <laughs> in love somewhere. Yes. Yep. And pitching from Sarah is basically, hey, you have to read this and then DMs every, uh, every other hour or so until I've started reading it and can discuss. <laughs> uh, she does good work. <laughs> she does. But yeah, so I'm always interested in hearing about the process behind the book. So mm -hmm. can you take us behind the scenes for A Marvelous Light? How did the story originate and what's the journey been like? I always planned the trilogy, which A Marvelous Light is the first book of. It's going to be called now The Last Binding Trilogy, as something a bit more in common with romance than fantasy as a genre, which is a plot that spans three books that involves the love stories of three different couples. So it's not going to have okay. the same two main protagonists for all three books. This particular one, A Marvelous Light, the story originated with a what if, and this will sound either extremely, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, so either going to sound very profound or very silly, but I saw a Tumblr post which said, oh, in the <laughs> Harry Potter books, the Minister for Magic and the Muggle Prime Minister have these regular meetings where the, the Muggle Prime Minister is the only one who knows about magic. Wouldn't it be funny if they fell in love? And I read that and thought, I think it would be better if it was actually more lowly civil servants for that particular story. If there was somebody whose job it was to just liaise about magic, but he wasn't actually anybody important. And so you had one who was magical and one who was not. And what if the unmagical one wasn't actually supposed to be there? So that was the very, very kernel of the idea, at which point I stopped and built the romance. So I thought, what sorts of people did I want these two civil servants to be? Who would push interestingly against one another's flaws and weaknesses and wounds? And then how would I get them to fall in love? So the rest of the plot and all the magical world building, all of that was constructed around the scaffold of Robin and Edwin's romance, which means that now I have a plot and a world to insert the next two romances into, uh, which is pretty classic for me. I usually start characters and relationship first and then build out, uh, which is a little different to, I think, some people who start with world and then build in. Uh, but I do find it saves time because I only have to build as much of the world as I end up using. I just throw details in as I write. And sometimes I'll have to pause and think, okay, I have now written myself into a point where I have to know the history of this, or I have to think more carefully about the logistics of the magical system. But the first drafting is just making stuff up as I go to fit around the romance. So how does that work with a trilogy? Because I imagine that has the unique problem of, I know you said before you build your books with that emotional spine rather than a action mm -hmm. or plot spine. Um, and it sounds like what you're describing here, but then you do have to have somewhat of that cohesive three book overarching plot then. So how yes. does that work? 
Yeah. So when I was building the plot of the first book, I kept thinking, okay, I do have to make a plot that will span three books. And in the grand tradition of fantasy writers everywhere, I thought what this needs is some magical MacGuffin items. And there can be three items. And the quest is get your hands (laughs) on the items before the bad guys do. So once I had that, the actual plot of the series began to take place. I have written the second book and I have come up with now in my head a very basic outline for how the the plot is going to end, like what's the climax going to look like, uh, what are the main plot beats of the third book. Uh, And I know pretty much, I think, as well, how the romance in that one is going to go. But I think when you're writing a romance, the beats of it often line up quite nicely with the beats of a more general sort of three-act or four-act plot because there has to be tension at certain points, there have to be dark points at certain points, there has to be a rise and fall. And I'm still learning how to weave together an emotional arc, a relationship arc, another emotional arc, and an interesting plot that will keep people turning pages. So it's always a juggling act and I'll probably get better at it as I write, but I was pretty happy with how it turned out in a marvelous light. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to diving into the next book. And I don't I don't actually know, is it a secret who the next characters are going to be? Um, I haven't been told to keep it particularly secret. Let me have a think. I will tell you that you have met one of the narrators for book two in book one. Okay. And you have also met one of the narrators for book three. Ah, interesting. I guess I, I haven't read a ton of romances, but I have started reading more recently. So I feel like I have some suspicions to uh, at least a small pool of characters who that might be. So looking forward to finding that out. And depending on when you announce that slash if you announce that before the first book, listeners may already know <laughs> because yeah. this is uh, not coming out I for think a I while. have already been talking about it a bit on, on Twitter, but I feel like it comes with more of a punch once you have read the first book mm. as to if I then say, oh, well, it's about this person. But I can tell you that book two is an FF romance. So both of the narrators um, are female characters, of which you have met one. And book two includes all of book three's main characters as well, because when I was playing, I realized a little bit to my dismay that you can't actually start book three of a trilogy bringing in somebody entirely new from the outside, because the, the readers will be going, no, no, we care about all these other people that you've already established, and we care about wrapping up the plot that you've been doing for two books, and it was going to be too much work and just not work and as, as a trilogy goes, bringing in someone entirely new. So book two has uh, the narrators who have the romance, and then it introduces quite strongly and early the two narrators of book three as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so the book you did mention, it takes place in 1908. Um, mm-hmm. And while it is absolutely not, I don't get the feeling that it's like very strict on the history and historical fiction, but you can really feel the vibrant setting. So was this something you had to research a lot to get right? I did, yeah. So it is in one sense alternative history in that, no, the real Edwardian England did not have a secret magical society. Uh, <laughs> but in the other sense, it is meant to be historical fiction in that it's an accurate portrayal of England as it was at that time, but with some secret magic hiding underneath. Right. So I did, I did read a few books um, on like mostly on the sort of social everyday life in that era. And then I did a lot of intensive internet research on questions that came up that I needed. So similar to the world building, I'd have to just pause when something came up that I wasn't sure about. So what was the structure of the civil service in 1908? What positions did women hold within it and how did they get those positions? 
where might you find a bookshop selling illicit erotica? And how did weekend house parties work? So I discovered that these are called Saturday to Mondays at that time because weekends, as we think of them now, were still a new concept that didn't really have a word for them. I remember the first season of Downton Abbey, okay. which is set more or less around the same time. There's this famous scene where the Dowager Countess goes, what is a weekend? And it was just a new thing, especially for the upper classes who don't have that set working week. Uh, but there was this concept of a Saturday to Monday house party where people would leave London, go out to somebody's house in the country, and then come back to London afterwards. And that was being entrenched as a thing at this time. So I had to sort of research some odd terms. What would they serve for breakfast at those house parties? Like the Edwardian era in England is a very short one. Like it's not like it's a vast span of history like the Victorian era. It's sandwiched between the end of the Victorian era and World War I. Uh, so it's not very long, but it does have this quite distinct aesthetic associated with it. And it was a time of a lot of shift in the occupations that were available, in where the money was in English society, how class intersected with occupation and wealth. And so I decided to make things even more complicated and throw in another type of power in the form of magic, <laughs> which was a great decision. But yeah, look, I did got a lot of specific research for specific questions that I wanted answered. I reread some E.M. Forster, who's one of my favorite writers who wrote books around that time. And I went specifically to a manor house called Wittick Manor in England, which was done up in the arts and crafts style. Uh, so all of the interior decorating that is very distinct in the book, I stole a lot of the small sensory details of that from Wittick Manor. And then for book two, I watched a lot oh, of costume. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of costume research and recreation videos on YouTube because because my main characters were women, they have to pay a lot more attention to what they wear and what the layers were and all of those things. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so this is an interesting detail for me. Uh, I I want to talk about the magic a bit because the cradling system is not one that I've seen before. Um, and mm -hmm. I do a little bit kind of hesitate to even call it a system because it does capture that sort of nebulous, uh, magical quality to it. Um, mm. So what was the inspiration for that? So this is again revealing how much I make things up on the fly when I draft things. <laughs> so the idea of cradling magic, so magic that involves the hand gestures of cats cradling, was something I actually came up with in a different short story, like a completely different, okay. not even set in the same world. Uh, uh, and I just threw it out in the prose because I had to come up with something like a, a magic system that was just a throwaway line. And I thought, oh, that's a cool idea. But then it stuck with me and I haven't actually published that short story. So when it came time to come up with a magic system for this particular book, I decided to take that idea, which I really liked, and then expand it. And exactly as you say, I wanted something that did have a sense of that there were rules about it and it's quite a regulated system but there is still a great sense of wonder and how nebulous the magic is that's behind this system. Uh, and so especially around Edwin, one of the protagonists, I wanted to use somebody who had less inherent magic. I wanted an underpowered protagonist because so much of the time in fantasy, you see protagonists who have so much more of the whatever the power or the magic is, and maybe they're untaught or maybe they haven't discovered that magic or maybe they've had to hide it but they are still usually quite powerful. And I deliberately wanted to have somebody who did not actually have a great deal of magical talents or a lot of magical power himself, 
that had interest and grit and creativity. And what would somebody like that do if they were really interested in the how-to and the technical side of magic? And what would they do to get the most out of the small amount of power that they had? So a lot of the world building of the magic system came out of Edwin as a character and the ways in which he interacts with the world and other magicians. Uh, and the rest of it was just 50% what would be cool here and 50% does that fit with the rules I've already established for myself. And at the end of the first draft, I had to sit down and have a long chat uh, with Macy, my, my friend and co-host, who is very good at teasing out whether a magic system makes sense. And she just asked me lots and lots of pointed questions. And I wriggled in my chair and went, oh, do I have to define that? But she was absolutely correct. And so now I have a much better understanding for myself of how the magic system works. Uh, although a lot of it will not end up on the page or at least will only be revealed in books two and three. Yeah. So I, I don't know where a lot of that struggle to, I guess, define the magic. Is that something that was more of in vague terms? Like, how do I make this broad thing work? Or is that like, oh, no, I said this in chapter one, but now I want to do this in chapter 12. Can I do that? Kind of <laughs> a little bit of both. Uh, and I think okay. you, well, if you invent something that is possible, my magic, you have to keep track of what you have said is possible. Because then if you hit a plot point of danger in chapter 12, and the person doesn't then use this very obvious thing that you said they could do in chapter two, that's a plot hole. So some of it is that, um, and some of it is also as the world magic-wise gets wider and the possibilities of magic get bigger, um, I think for myself I do need to know what is the basis of it, where is this power coming from, what are the bounds of it, what are the implications of some of the big plot events? And especially as I've been planning the plot for book three, I've had to really nail down for my own sake what is possible, where does the magic come from, what are the big rules, capital R rules, about magic as I've conceived it in this series. On the nitty-gritty level, I get a lot of pleasure out of the small things that, you know, how do you use a small amount of magic to do something creative? And I really enjoyed playing with that in book two as well, because one of the characters in book two has spent a lot of time in America. And so I've been able to talk a little bit about how, well, how might other countries with the same kind of magic, but come up with different ways of producing spells and using the same thing. So it's been fun to make a lot of texture to the, to the world building now that I have worked it out on a grandest game. Yeah, I'd say that's probably two of my favorite things with anything magical is one, like there's some underlying truth to how the magic behaves, but different countries, different cultures, different people approach it so differently. Mm. And then also, I really like the underpowered protagonists. I think it's really cool to see the creativity you come up with, like Edwin with his physical string instant nostalgia for me because I used to be big into like the cat's cradling when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, so not to brag, but I made a pretty mean Jacob's Ladder. Oh, um, very good. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had I had one book on cat's cradle and I was pre, you know, being able to do find a YouTube video for anything. And so I made mm -hmm. everything in that book over and over again uh, and really enjoyed. I liked that. I liked the, uh, the fact that it was somewhere between puzzle and craft. And it didn't take very long to master, but it just seemed so magical. You know, it said, okay, put your thumb here, move this here, put a loop around this, and then you pulled your hands apart and you'd made something with no concept of how or why. And it always seemed slightly magical to me. And so it did seem like an obvious I mean, yeah, place. Yeah, that kind of, now that you describe it that way, that does seem inherently magical. So that seems like a perfect fit. 
Yeah. And so Edwin is someone who has a sense of intellectual curiosity and also an inferiority complex. Uh, and so he's really into that nitty gritty of the magic. And then you've got the outsider character, Robin, who has no magic at all, but he has a sense of aesthetics. And so yeah. that combination of those two um, made for an approach to magic that I found really fun to play with. And one of the many ways that I think the title is super fitting, A Marvelous Light, is that the magic really does have this marvelous quality to it. So despite you obviously, like we've been talking about, working out some of the background and the theory behind it, there is that sense of wonder that weaves through all the characters interacting with magic. So mm -hmm. how, how do you capture that mysterious sense of wonder? Um, you choose your point of view characters well, I think. Okay. So having one character who is completely new to magic, and this is why portal fantasies and urban fantasies and lots of types of fantasies like that have their protagonist is the entryway character, the one for whom this is a new world. And so you can have them having a guided tour of the new world where someone says, well, let me tell you about how this system works. And, oh, do you have questions about this? Let me explain it to you slash the reader. Uh, so having Robin be somebody who's not particularly intellectual. Like he doesn't actually feel any need to analyze magic, but he finds it wonderful. And he has not necessarily a childlike sense of wonder, uh, but a pretty simple sense of wonder. You know, he can acknowledge when he is in danger, but he is also always looking for the beautiful in the world. Uh, so that was really important to me to have somebody who is always appreciative of what is beautiful and what is wondrous. Whereas Edwin is someone who has probably lost his sense of what is beautiful about magic, but he enjoys it for the intellectual puzzle of its own sake. And showing magic through those two different points of view hopefully means that the reader gets a sense of both what is wonderful and unexplained and lovely about it, uh, but also what is interesting about it. And it allows for some really, really fun character interactions between Edwin and Robin too. Yeah, Edwin would really like it if Robin had a little bit more of a solid grounding in things like natural science and logic. <laughs> and Robin just really doesn't care that much about the books and the research and how things happen and why. Yes, this is why every story should have at least one himbo. It was very enjoyable. He's the kind of character that I don't usually write, or at least haven't written a lot of in the past. And extricating myself from that constant need to analyze everything was a little bit difficult to begin with because in temperament I'm more like Edwin. But once I got the handle on Robin's point of view, it was actually remarkably freeing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, so you have said before that your brand as an author could accurately be described as lots of sex, some politics. Um, so I'm just curious, one amazing brand, love it. Uh, but what about this combination resonates so much with you? Uh, okay. So serious, serious answer to a, a fairly flippant brand. Um, look, like most aspects of fiction, the portrayal of sex is always political. And I think politics can be sexy, but that's more of a personal thing for me. Uh, look, both of them are about people. So what do people want? How does their desire make them vulnerable? And how do they respond when presented with somebody else's vulnerability? That can be a sex scene. And that can be, you know, a political argument scene. I think they both are really about how people's desire interact with the structures of the world and the way they've been brought up and the other people that they come into contact with. So as a combination, I think they make more sense once you dig in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's kind of hard not to see it that way. 
And so I don't know if this is an actual thing, but uh, I did hear a mention on Be the Serpent of Freya's smut writing course. Um, so I guess first, is that an actual course? Is that a thing that you have presented to people? Uh, in a way, yes. Uh, so it took me quite a long time to teach myself to write sex. Um, fan fiction, I think, has this reputation of, oh, it's just, you know, wall-to-wall smut. But of the 15 years I've been writing fanfiction, I probably only started to write sex scenes in the final few years. Uh, and it was something that I had to teach myself, like all of those other skills of writing that we've already talked about. But I really enjoyed the process of looking at other people's scenes and saying, what works about this? What makes this effective? What makes it stand out? And quite deliberately teaching myself to do that, first in fanfiction and now in original fiction as well. And so when I've had friends who say, oh, you know, your sex scenes are, are good. You seem so comfortable writing them. How do I do that? I have actually been known to set people exercises or say, okay, go away and you have a go. Or, all right, here's an example of a couple of paragraphs of how I think this dynamic you're describing would play out. Go away and put that in your own words. <laughs> Very much like a, like a writing coach. Uh, so technically, yes, I do run Freya's Smut School. Uh, but I think I'm also just always encouraging people to give it a go if it's something you think you would enjoy, basically. So I would say if you don't enjoy reading sex scenes, don't try and write them. They don't belong in every book. They're not necessary. But I think if there's something that you like reading in books, it is always worth trying to learn how to write them as well. Yeah, I would say one of my personal gripes, specifically in fantasy sometimes, is maybe even outside of sex, but to romance in general, is that romance is such an integral part, I feel like, to almost every story that some fantasy writers who maybe shouldn't be writing romance or should be attending Freya's <laughs> smut school before they write romance um, feel like they have to include that anyways. Uh, so I, I definitely appreciate like paying attention to that part of the craft. Yeah, and look, obviously part of my brand and my goal is to put more and better romance and sex into science fiction and fantasy because I think we, a lot of readers enjoy them, but they absolutely are not necessary. And I do agree that you can tell when somebody just doesn't really see the point of a romance arc or even of a sex scene and has just put it there because they think it's what the readers want or maybe the editors said, oh, you should put some romance in this. Because if that's not what you read for, you're not going to know what people are reading for. You know, it's, it's you're just putting it in for the sake of it. It's never going to ring true. Uh, but yeah, certainly I think that there's a lot of overlap in the people who read genre fiction. There are a lot of romance readers who are hungry for more fantasy that gives them what they're looking for in romance. Um, and there are a lot of people in the romance genre writing excellent fantasy romance and science fiction romance and have been for ages. And there are a lot of fantasy readers who also really like romance, but maybe are getting that satisfaction from fan fiction or from reading genre romance with a capital R. Uh, and so I've been looking for ways to write in that overlap of the Venn diagram. Yeah. And yes, by all means, I'm a huge fan of breaking down strict like genre boundaries and definitely trying to bring the best parts of all of them together. Mm. Um, so I am curious, uh, since I know some of our listeners are probably interested in either writing effective sex scenes or in terms of just knowing the behind the scenes of how things work. Uh, do you have any kind of like core advice that you like to give people to help them level that up? Hmm. Okay. So I say, keep in mind what the purpose of it is in within the book. It doesn't have to be, you know, a groundbreaking, you know, take this out and the whole book falls apart. But I'd say like, what are you trying to reveal about these characters? What are you trying to shift 
in their character arc or their relationship arc. Very key is are you breaking tension or are you adding to tension? So a sex scene traditionally will break tension between two people that you've had, you know, oh, will they or won't they? They've had some charged glances. Maybe their hands have touched during a sword coaching scene and you've built up this tension. And then if you're letting something happen, if it's a kiss, if it's a sex scene, to a certain extent, you are then breaking that tension. But you can also use them to build up tension if, for example, one of them is holding a secret that the other one doesn't know and now you've deepened their relationship but the secret is still there. Or this is a sex scene between people who shouldn't be having a sex scene because one of them is engaged to someone else. So you can use it to either cause a lull in rising tension or to increase the tension. Or if you're playing it on hard mode, both, (laughs) depending on the arcs in your book. Uh, So I'd say always keep that in mind. But secondly, and this may sound contradictory, don't pretend you're not writing it for people to enjoy. Like, write it for the joy of writing it. Um, You know, I think if you put sex scenes in there and think, oh, no, this is there for serious reasons, not to be enjoyed by the reader, that way lies the bad sex awards and the notorious sex scenes in some literary fiction, which are just Mm. limp with very awkward metaphors, and you just get the sense that this person's sitting there typing with a really grim expression on their face going, no one's going to enjoy this. That's the point. You know, if I make this sex scene (laughs) sexy, I have failed. And I think, no, make it sexy, make it joyful, make it something that you would enjoy reading. I guess the other thing I would say is you can't make a sex scene sexy for everyone and you shouldn't try. And this is a general writing tip as well. If you try and please everybody, you're going to end up with something that's sort of flavorless and shapeless. So put in something that you think you enjoy and that you think, yes, this is sexy, this is fun, or this is sexy and this is dark, but don't try and appeal to everybody. You're not going to win. And some people will always hit the sex scene and go, no, that doesn't really work for me. Or, oh, a sex scene, I'm just going to turn some pages until that's done. Which, you know, as as a writer, you think, well, it's part of the book. I'd like you to read it, but not everybody enjoys them. So that's fine. (laughs) You can't please them all. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you're describing my experience with a lot of fight scenes in general. It's like, oh, there's another (laughs) fight scene. They're going to throw some punches and fireballs at each other. Turn pages, turn pages. (laughs) Absolutely. I think they can be very similar. Like you have to keep the choreography in mind for both. Like, okay, where is this person's arm? hang on, they're wounded. I can't make them do that. And it is now an in-joke with my agent that I have a tendency to send characters into sex scenes with wounds or injuries and then forget. <laughs> <laughs> and then she'll come back and go, hang on, they shouldn't be using that hand or leaning on that leg. And I'll go, oh yeah, yeah, I, f- I forgot about that. So yeah, fight scenes like sex scenes can be used to break tension, to build tension. You have to keep where bodies are in space and relationship to each other in mind. And sometimes if you really enjoy the nitty gritty detail, you are just writing for the fun of it. And some people are going to go, oh, fight scene, turn page, turn page, turn page. So you're absolutely right. Lots of similarities there. And I'm going to move on before I get my brain fixated on talking about plot holes in sex scenes, because that seems like a bad direction to go down. Um, Just other types of holes. (laughs) Exactly right. Uh, Yeah. Read it for the plot. But yeah, so I'm curious as well. You've mentioned, so the first book, obviously, it's a male-male relationship. The second book is an FF relationship. So Mm -hmm. what do you find to be so uh, particularly appealing about these queer romance stories? And look, as a very straightforward answer, as a queer person, I want to tell queer stories. And 
I think there's been this incredible explosion of queer stories in science fiction and fantasy genre in particular um, in the last 10 years. Obviously, there were some amazing groundbreakers, but the stuff that's coming out of publishers today, there's heaps and heaps of queer stories. We are really lucky, and I'm really grateful to be writing in this space now, surrounded by so many incredible peers who are also doing that. Uh, I think in science fiction and fantasy in particular, you have a lot of options when it comes to the type of love story or queer story you want to tell. Like you have the option of building a queer norm world where people wouldn't bat an eye at two men getting married or two women getting married, where there's got no societal baggage attached to it in the way it does in our world. For a lot of people, that really appeals, that you can have a story about other things and nobody cares about homophobia or transphobia. It's just not there. But you can also use it to explore the experiences of queer people in the real world and real history as well, but in a fantasy setting. And so with A Marvelous Light, I wanted to look a little bit about the experiences of queer people in the real history of our world. But with same-sex relationships in general and queer relationships in general, I like that the power dynamics that you can explore don't necessarily have that inbuilt baggage. Uh, of the patriarchy and of different gender roles that are built into our society. Again, sex is political. You can't get away from it. And so I really enjoy writing and digging into the dynamics that you can have between people once you remove some of that baggage. And look, I had a little bit more experience and practice writing MM romances just from the types of fandoms that I was writing in. But yes, the second one is FF. And I actually just finished writing a contemporary romance that is MF with bisexual characters. So I'm very excited to explore the whole gamut. And I think that might even be a uh, Dancing on Knife Shoes contemporary romance, unless I'm thinking of a different story. Ah, uh, yes. No, I forgot that you, like, you have a mainline via Sarah to everything that I am writing. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's all very um, in progress, nebulous at the moment. It's not even something that we've gone on submission with, but that is correct. I am writing some queer romances about ice skaters. So I did ask Sarah, and he did tell me that it is something that you have discussed in the past on social media, so I don't think I'm revealing anything too secret no, no. by going into that broad step. No, I am, I'm a very, like, complain about what I'm writing on social media type of person, so <laughs> It's usually pretty open. Yeah. So what, if anything, do you hope that readers take away from A Marvelous Light outside of just, you know, the story and the characters? I think given the way that the past couple of years have gone in the real world, I would like it to be a book that treats people's hearts kindly. Like, I think everybody has a weakness for books that rip you apart to shreds and leave you, you know, gasping on the floor and feeling like you've been through the emotional ringer. And certainly there are some amazing books like that coming out this year, and I have huge respect for the people who write them. But I want this to be a book that leaves the reader feeling like that they are satisfied and full of joy. I want the happy ending for the main characters to feel earned. You know, they still have to go through some shit along the way. But I want that feeling of joy and that it can be a book for people to go back to if they want comfort and they want to escape into something where they know people are going to earn happiness at the end. Uh, but I guess I also hope that the readers will be curious enough about where I leave the larger story arc to be impatient for book two. <laughs> yes, I do think you have pulled that off. And yeah, I think kind of the underlying message of this whole episode and your work so far talking about it is make it sexy, make it joyful, like you said earlier. And I love that. Yep, I think that is that can be uh, the thing that I print up on a big poster and put it above my computer. That's my mission <laughs> statement. There we go. Um, that is an excellent mission statement. <laughs> so uh, looking forward, I'm curious, are there any upcoming projects that you can talk about? 
Um, nothing that I can talk about beyond the trilogy itself, really. So as I said, um, okay. you know, as the trilogy will be coming out one book per year for the next few years, so it should be around the same time uh, next year, and then the year after that will be books two and three. And but there's nothing else that I can talk about in terms of announced projects or announced things coming out. This is just this for the moment. Okay. And uh, something I always really enjoy asking people is, are there any good books or fix you've read recently and you can recommend? So many. Like I had to go to my <laughs> record of books. I, I read a lot of books every month. Uh, but in terms of making it joyful and making it queer and joyful, I really particularly want to shout out Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Alki. Uh, and this is an incredible book that I was lucky enough to read in an advanced copy. It's about violinists making deals with demons and about alien space captains in disguise on Earth selling donuts. And it's a beautiful story about queer found family. Yeah, I think that is probably one of the books in my circles that I've been hearing the most buzz about recently. And I am so looking forward to finally digging into it. And it's one of those books where I can tell you a list of things that's in it. And you're still not going to really understand what kind of book it is until you're halfway through it. So I think, you know, even just on the basis of that, go in cold and enjoy the ride. It's a really, really lovely book. On the more romance side of things, um, probably one of my favorite romances I read this year is The View Was Exhausting by Michaela Clemens and Anjali Datta. Uh, this is a celebrity fake dating romance, which is a particular trope that I love. Uh, and it's sharp and it's gorgeous and it's got a lot to say about uh, the nature of celebrity and the ways in which particular societies and industries are stacked against women and women of colour in particular, but just in general a wonderful fake dating friends to lovers book, so I highly recommend that. And probably the best fantasy I read recently is Summer Suns by Lee Mandelow. And this one I think is not out yet, but it will be out by the time this episode airs. This is a Southern Gothic yes, contemporary horror will. with Dark Academia, which is a wonderful string of words to apply to a book. Uh, and it's also about fast cars <laughs> and queer yearning. So if anything in that word bundle appeals to you, I sped through this. It's not a short book, but it just flew by. The writing is incredible. It's got a really interesting mystery at the heart of it. And I love when a book's engine is a mystery because if one thing will keep me turning pages, it is either will they fall in love and how and who killed the person. So murder mystery and falling in love and Summer Sons has both of those. So perfect for me. Yeah, you are also hitting on a lot of books that Sarah has recommended to me. So <laughs> I definitely uh, feel like there's some tastes in common and I feel like I will like all of these books. Good. And then uh, Freya, one of the ways I like to close out all of these conversations is just asking you, what is one thing you are excited about right now? I'm excited about my debut, really. Like it's been such a long time in the process. I'm really excited to have my book out there and to have people reading it. Here we are at the moment. Um, I'm not sure if this will actually play out given how the pandemic is going in Australia at the moment, but uh, if possible, I would really like to do like a little mini tour. So as Australian writers, we don't really get the American book tour or the English book tour. And I know that book tours have become a very blog and a blog heavy thing, you know, at the moment, but I would really like to, if I can sort of travel to a few cities in on the East coast of Australia and do some in-person book events. So I've got my fingers very tightly crossed that that will play out. I'm really excited about the prospect of that, but even if it doesn't, even if it turns out to be impossible, I am just really excited to keep talking about my book and 
shoving it into people's hands and hoping that it brings them joy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Freya, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful discussion. You can find Freya Mosk on Twitter as Freya Mosk or at her website, freyamosk.com. Come for the vibrant, magical, and historically accurate world. Stay for the brilliant characters and steamy sex scenes. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.